Follow What Was The Score podcast at WWTS underscore podcast on Twitter and follow me personally on Instagram at JME underscore F-U-R-N-E-S-S. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Good morning, good afternoon, Jim W, and welcome back to What Was The Score, the sports history podcast. It's me, Jamie, I'm here alone today, and today I'm going to be tackling a bit of a tricky one. I'm going to be looking at the question, what makes a sport? Okay, so this kind of debate for me uh, came up with my dad first. So my dad is a big fan of motorsport, and we always have the debate that should it be considered a sport, considering the primary worker is the car not the human now of course that's debatable in amongst itself but you know let's let's go with that for the moment so of course he says yes because if you look at the uh, conditioning that, that the drivers have to be in you look at lewis hamilton he's in fantastic shape now why should that you know and of course it, it's such a fine skill to be able to drive like that why shouldn't it be considered a sport whereas you could also argue on the other side that because the car is the primary worker as we say it shouldn't be a sport. So we're going to dive into it and we're going to look at it from a different couple of fundamental points of view. So let's get in with a definition of the word sport straight away. An Oxford dictionary has it as an activity involving physical exertion and skill in which an individual or team competes against another or others for entertainment. Now there's a lot in that and we're going to try and unpack a lot of it. Let's start with that bit of physical exertion. Okay so what is exertion? Within exercising and weightlifting and running, you have RPE, perceived exertion. And of course, that's completely subjective. You know, Mo Farah finds a marathon a lot easier than Usain Bolt, but Usain Bolt finds us, you know what I'm saying? So what classifies as exertion? Where's that cutoff that makes something not taxing, not particularly exerting, and a high-level exertion? And of course, as I say, that's subjective, because of course, if we were to take chess and sprinting for a, for a more um, stark contrast, moving a chess piece, of course, is technically exertion, but sprinting's a lot more. Now, do we therefore say that sprinting is is a more difficult sport? I mean, that's a whole other debate in amongst itself. Now, of course, exertion is is a tricky one because. As I said, with motorsport, you do exert yourself. You you must sweat a, an awful lot. <laughs> it's a lot of concentration. It's a lot of uh, physical hand movements. A lot of fine motor skill. And it's the same with horse racing. You know, horse uh, jockeys have to be very very fit. Typically, it helps if they're short. You know, just because there's less weight for the horse to carry in that case. But of course, it is a skill, isn't it? Not everyone could get on a horse and, and just ride it to victory. Not everyone could jump behind a motor vehicle and, and drive it around a course in an exceptionally fast time. So, what is exertion? We haven't really unpacked that. I mean, it, it, it's a very broad term. And yes, it's a very broad definition. An activity involving physical ex- exertion and skill in which an individual team competes against another or others for entertainment. And I think that plays into what a sport is. A sport is whatever you make it. So if we kind of underline this as the first point, you know, if you're exerting yourself in any way, shape or form, perhaps it is a sport. Perhaps it's a sport if you make it a sport. 
But let's move on to a bit further on in that definition, in which a team competes or an individual competes. And I think that element of competition is key. Someone must win. So that also poses another question. Someone must win. Okay, in football, it is very black and white. Who scored more goals? Yes, you can draw, but that is how you define who won. You know, same with basketball, you know, baseball, tennis. Who scored more points? Basically, goals are points, aren't they? But what about activities that are scored subjectively? What about dance? Now, no one can tell me that dance isn't a high level of exertion. I know dancers. I know how hard they train. I know how hard dancing is. I couldn't do it. It takes a large level of, of, of physical fitness and a large level of skill, but it's scored subjectively. Now, how can one be truly competitive if your judging is subjective? Surely that isn't fair. Boxing, you, you kind of have that too, where it's on points and everyone says this is a contentious decision. Of course, if it doesn't go to a knockout, you know. So how can it how how can we really have competition if it's subjective scoring? Now, of course, that's a that's a big question. Perhaps all it's okay. Let, let, let's think about it this way. Let's say that football wasn't decide the winner wasn't decided by how many goals you score, and the winner of a football match was decided by a panel who give you a mark out of 10 for how well you played. Well, that would change the way that you play football, would it not? You know, you wouldn't see teams sit back and try and nick a 1-0 win because the panel might, you know, they might be biased against that for one of a hundred reasons. But of course, that's not typically a sexy way of playing football, is it? So that, that this idea of being uh, judged objectively and subjectively is difficult. You know, and as a historian, of course, we try and remain objective. So perhaps sports should try and remain objective, especially when we're looking at sports history. Now, I think we can start to make some big statements here. And I think it is a safe bet to say a sport is marked objectively, whereas an art is marked subjectively. Now, what do I kind of mean by that? You couldn't put a painting in front of me and say, you know, this is clearly a 2-1 victory. Or you, you know what I'm saying? Like, it is down to my opinion as much, you know. At the end of the day, um, Leicester beat Chelsea last night, okay? You couldn't tell me, well, subjectively, Chelsea won. They didn't. <laughs> in my opinion, Chelsea won. They didn't. Leicester won. That's that's a fact. That's objective. And you, if you, if you put a sculpture, a painting... A vocal performance by a performer in front of you and you had five people you could get five different answers and it'd all be valid if you can justify them and i think therein lies the difficulty when defining what a sport is so let's take friendly games in football yeah or the harlem globetrotters are they sports people or artistic performers now the globetrotters is an interesting example because of course they do try and perform and they do try and add a bit of the flair and a bit of the fun and a bit of the art of the game but friendly matches of course that goes back to this competition element is there really any competition in a friendly game it's a, it's a difficult one because of course yes people want to win but it's a friendly game and there's no tangible stake 
So it's difficult. It's really difficult. And I hope that you've been able to get a sense from me talking about how even in this definition, there, there is difficulty defining. So if we talk about reductionist historical theory, where something boils down to something, this idea of having subjective scoring really challenges reductionist theory. Now, of course, when we talk about sport, we, we do talk in reductionist sense. We say, well, at the end of the day, this is what they did to win. And that's, that's a common phrase, especially in England, with the way that we use our words. But whether we mean to use reductionist theory or not, that, that, that's what we do. You say, well, at the end of the day, they won 1-0. You could tell me that, you know, let's say Manchester United beat Manchester City 1-0. Manchester City had 20 shots, Manchester United had one. We could talk about it subjectively and say City were the better team. But objectively, at the end of the day, it boils down to the fact that Manchester United won the game. So this idea of classifying performing arts as, as a type of sport really challenges reductionist theory of sport. And then that's, that, that, that's difficult. That's, that's difficult. That poses a difficulty because then what theory do we subscribe to in sports history? Let's, have, let's take Marxism, for example. Now, in, uh, in about the 1930s, 20s in, in Russia, you had groups that thought that sport was not Marxist because they, they believed that it went against Marxist theory because it promoted competition, individualism, and it was just, it was just not, not, what you want, not what you wanted from, a, uh, from your communist population, for want of a better word. Now, of course, Russia is, is a very, very um, interesting example in amongst itself. So, let's have a look at this Marxist theory a little bit more. Well, surely, in that sense, the arts, even though the arts, perhaps by pure Marxists and pure communists, are seen as redundant, maybe, perhaps being graded subjectively, where there isn't any true competition apart from with oneself, is the better way to grade sports. And therefore, if we subscribe to sub Marxist theory with regards to sports history, perhaps we could say that the performing arts are sports, because they are... Com you're competing, you're competing, let's say, for argument's sake, against yourself and the judges. Okay, that slightly bucks our main definition, but it's still, you know, dance and performing it is definitely physical exertion and skill. So there, there, there's two kind of contrasting ideas about how we can regard sports history with a reductionist theory and then maybe a more Marxist sense. But let's move on and let's kind of go back to where we started with, you know, what sports are sports, or what games are sports, for example. So if we go back up to our definition, and it says involving physical exertion and skill. Okay, now, I, for, for, as a disclaimer, I'm not talking down on any of the sports that I'm about to go over. This is just good examples. If you take darts, if you take Phil Taylor and Michael Van Gerlin, two of the best dart players perhaps ever, they're not in great shape, are they? They're not Cristiano Ronaldo. They're not, you know, Mo Farah, as I say. They're, they're larger guys. Take snooker. Now, darts and snooker don't require a lot of exertion, physical exertion. They don't require a lot of energy. However, and of course, feel free to prove me wrong. However, they require a hell of a lot of fine motor skill. 
something that I will never have and it's far too late in the day for me to really learn to become an elite player in either, either game. Now you see, you had the slip of the tongue, it almost said sport. And that's that's another tricky one. Because, okay, now we've got three kind of main contrast, or four main contrasting camps. You have perhaps conventional sport, like football, rugby, cricket. You have sport where you are not the primary athlete or you're controlling something. Motor racing, horse racing. And then you have artistic sports where you're graded subjectively. And then you have sports in which it requires a very fine level of motor skill, but not a lot of physical fitness. Now, of course, the argument can be made that the fitter you are in darts, the more that you could practice in a day, the slower you fatigue, therefore the longer you can perform at a high level, just so on and so forth. Yes, I understand that. But it really, at the end of the day, it boils down to if I played a leg against Phil Taylor when he was five pints down on no sleep, he would still mop the floor with me because of the fine motor skill and nothing to do with the levels of fitness. Now, yes, I am awful at darts. It's not a great example. So maybe instead of when we're thinking about sports, instead of going, this is a team sport or this is a ball sport, maybe we should break it down into those kind of bigger groups. Now, conventional, I'm not sold on the term. However, it seems to be a good placeholder. Conventional sports being athletics, being football, being sports where it is very clear that the fitter you are, the better you are, typically. Now, of course, that's not always the golden rule. You know, you, you see in the 90s, Paul Gascoigne abusing certain substances and you see football players nowadays that aren't in great shape. But at the end of the day, they are still athletes that could probably run a lot further than I could and I claim to be in good shape. So let's go with conventional as one. Then let's go for motorsport or perhaps actually no because they're motor skill sports. Let's go for the ones like darts and snooker. Let's put them into a group because of course you have to train. There's you know if you take what it means to be an athlete you need to practice, you need to have a good mental grasp of the game, you need to practice in an effective way and perhaps a good example of this is golf because of course very recently we've seen Bryson DeChambeau hitting the ball further and straighter than a lot of players ever have before and he's kind of revolutionising the game of golf whereas before you know Phil Mickelson up until recently was never in great shape but relied on his fine motor skill in his short game to win golf tournaments so perhaps that's a hybrid between conventional and motor skill but even then with golf it is a case of I could hit the ball 400 yards in one hit if I can't putt <laughs> I'm not winning and of course what's the point hitting it 400 if I miss the green when I could go 300 then 100 you know what I mean and get it on the green so yes of course there are you know we're already seeing overlappings and we're not even finished so we've got conventional, we've got motorsport. Okay, well, what about artistic? Let's say we have that as a uh, as a another category. Sports which are graded subjectively. So we could have dance performance, ice performance. We could have diving. We could, to an extent, have boxing. Again, another overlap player, isn't it? But of course, this is why the debate has, you know, 
become a prominent one for myself at the very least. And then of course you can have sports where you are controlling something. I think as, as those as you know four or five categories, I think that kind of covers all sport. Now of course let's put those in one camp. What about games? So the one ineffable quality of a sport is that it's competitive. And that's something that every single uh, game and activity I've mentioned so far, that's what they have in common. They're competitive. You're competing against yourself, competing against one another. So what about a game like chess? What about a game like rock, paper, scissors? Of course, the physical exertion of that is there, but very, very minimal. But of course, like other athletes, chess players have to practice. Rock, paper, okay, rock, paper, scissors is maybe not the best example, but chess players have to practice. They have to have one hell of an understanding of the game. They need to know there's it's so many different parts of games, openings, different types of checkmates, different types of defences, different types of... You, you get what I'm saying? So everything a chess player does, and a regular athlete might, might do, of course, a regular athlete might go, well, I'm going to run on the treadmill. And of course, that isn't particularly appropriate. Or go to the gym. It is particularly appropriate for a chess player's ability to play chess. However, a chess player might do his mental exercises. And I think that's a big differentiation that we need to make. Because all sport requires a high mental grasp of the game. It, all of it does. Whereas some sports require less of it. And of course, I'm not a sprinter. I can't speak for sprinting. However, you could argue that the mental requirement to or, or, or the tactics of sprinting aren't quite that of a game of football or tennis so i think that's another big differentiation and perhaps what could set aside a game from a sport now of course it's interesting that they call it the olympic games and a lot of it is athletics so perhaps I'm completely missing the point, and perhaps athletics are more games shouldn't be considered a sport per se. Because javelin is a case of how far can I throw the javelin? It's not a case of if I go to 60 and then he goes to 70, then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have a, a duel, as it were. So that's, that's, an, that's an interesting one. How do we differentiate a game from a sport? Now, of course, the competition element. I think is key and I think something that the definition of a sport misses out is a lot of individual sports people compete against themselves, compete for themselves against themselves because the end of the definition says or others for entertainment. Well what about grassroots or lower level sport where there's not a crowd? You're playing for fitness, you're doing whatever for, for fun. Does that discredit lower level sport as sport and just game, gameplay? Because you're still playing the sport. Again, it's, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. I think if we're going to sew it together and kind of have some closing thoughts here, I think what we've been able to establish is that what makes a sport is lots of common features amongst things that are conventional sports, games, less conventional sports, However, it's this idea of your perception of it, I think is the key thing. Because of course you will have listened to me speak and I've had these thoughts go through my mind as I speak and, and we think, well, okay, yeah, no, that's not a sport or that is a sport or I agree that that is and I agree that that isn't. And it's your perception. Of course, at the end of the day, I couldn't do what Lewis Hamilton does. No way. 
I couldn't do what Phil Taylor, Ronnie O'Sullivan does. No way. Does that mean that they, you know, do, does that add credibility to their to their sport, as it were? Yeah, of course it does. They've had to practice a hell of a lot, a hell of a lot, and it is physically demanding and mentally demanding to do that. So therefore, I think we could say, yes, if you have to train for it, and at the end of the day, you have to use a physical exertion, as the definition says, then yes, it is a sport. What makes a sport? Do you have to train? Yes. Is it competitive? Yes. I think that is a very, very simple way of looking at it. If we go back to our theory a little bit, when we're talking about subjectivity and objectivity, I think dance therefore is a sport because you have to train and it is competitive. Of course, perhaps it's a fault of dance, but how, how can you grade dance objectively? It's done on expression. It's again, a tricky one. I don't think we'll ever get to the bottom of the question, what makes a sport? And of course, I could sit here for an hour going over the old, same old ground. I could probably convince myself one way or the other. But I think my very closing thought on this is, if you train and it is competitive, it is a sport. Therefore, chess is a sport. Motorsport is a sport. Now, we could go even deeper into that and we could look at, okay, well, you know, well, surely then creating the cars in motor racing is a sport. Maybe. That's not my decision to make. But I think we've spoken enough about this for now. And I think uh, we've, we've, we've come across some really interesting topics there. And I'd like to think that this has helped you reevaluate the way that we use sport and view sport, rather. Now, of course, sport isn't just a case of, oh, well, you know, do you train? Yes, it has to do with the public too, you know, whether it's a, an entertainment sport or not. But I think there, there's enough in there that we can really start to think about how we should define sport. And therefore, when we look at sports history, perhaps we can see precursors to sport in uh, early modern habits. Anyway, I'm going to leave you with those sports, uh, those sports, those thoughts on sport. This has been Jamie from What Was The Score, the Sports History Podcast. Hope you had a good time listening. Thank you, and I'll see you shortly.